0: Awaken Podcast. I hope you enjoy the teaching.
1: Good morning, friends, and welcome to Awaken. Um, this morning, well, it's actually Wednesday afternoon. Uh, we are we're preparing for a service of lament in a couple of hours, so looking forward to seeing many of you, but. As we continue to process and think about uh, the events of the last week in our city and in our own lives, in our church, uh, we hope, I hope and I pray, I trust that the Spirit of God is still out there at work. And even in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of sadness, in the midst of anger, that you have found the sweet presence of God. In ways that maybe you haven't before. Uh, I want to begin this morning before we sing and bless our kids and move on to a teaching. uh, I want to begin with a prayer by Walter Brueggemann. I found that this this last week and just thought uh, yes to that. Uh, So I want to begin with that. We name you King, Lord, Sovereign. We trust you, except sometimes we do not. We take matters into our own hands. We fashion power and authority and sovereignty enforced by law and bureaucracy and weapons. We think to make ourselves safe. And then learn staggeringly how insufficient is our product, how thin is our law, how ineffective is our bureaucracy, how impotent our weapons. We are driven back to you your will, your purpose, your requirements, care for land, care for neighbor, care for future. We name you King, Lord, Sovereign, how undemocratic. And in naming, become aware of our status before you, loved, sent, and summoned. And so we pray in the name of the loved, sent, and summoned Jesus. Amen.
0: Well, hi Awaken. Uh, We are gonna sing together a little bit. Um, Before we do that, I wanted to share a song with you um, that's been on my mind this week and I wanted to sing it um, as a prayer for those that are doing the hard work, that have been doing the hard work for a very long time. this is known as one of Martin Luther King's favorite songs that he would request at rallies uh, to be sung and it's my heart's prayer that those that are feeling tired that are feeling worn would feel the hand of God with them so if you would um, sing along with me if you know it Precious Lord, take my- di song of blessing um, sing it over our kids so if you'll join me and let's sing this over them may god give
1: Okay, hey friends, uh, before we get to the teaching, one quick announcement, and that is that uh, our leadership team met last night, our advisory team and staff and core team, and talked about like uh, our plan going forward, our plan for the summer as it relates to gathering, and do we gather, do we not, do we do it in some sort of abridged fashion or not, and uh, our plan as of now, and of course, this is all subject to change based on evidence and uh, recommendations by our state and local uh, health organizations, and governor. But our plan is, in the months of June, July, and August, once a month, we are working on securing uh, an outdoor location where we can gather together for worship, uh, social distance uh, assumed. and. Um, and we'll do that, and then the other weeks we'll we'll do this. Uh, actually, the weeks that we do outdoor worship, we'll still offer our sort of pot, our weekly podcast, and we'll record the teaching. But uh, those gatherings will be kind of you know uh, singing and uh, and a teaching, and bring a blanket and picnic and stay as long as you like. Bring frisbees. Bring your pets. You know, um, maybe f- your fish. <laughs> Snakes They're, well, theologically we could probably make an argument that no snakes but fish for sure. anyways, bring, bring yourselves bring your bring your family and your friends and that'll be that. so last Sunday in June, July, and August more details to come on location once we secure those. okay we are we're going to conclude our series uh, called implications this morning. We have been in this for I think seven or eight weeks now. And we're looking at the implications of the, the the death and resurrection of Jesus the Christ. The first disciples, the first apostles in the book of Acts, as they were trying to make sense of what does it mean that Jesus has died and been resurrected. And so we have started in Acts 1. We looked at the unschooled and ordinary men that the Spirit of God used to... Uh, advance this message about Jesus's death and resurrection. We looked at uh, Ananias and Sapphira being struck down in this first moment uh, of the new story being written and unfolded. We looked at Stephen's speech to the Jewish leaders and establishment about the history of Israel and what Jesus had done, uh, and then his eventual death and and martyrdom. That'll actually play into today's teaching, the the word martyr. The Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter eight, and then uh, two weeks ago, Saul, or excuse me, uh, Uh, Peter and the the conversion of Cornelius, the Roman centurion. And so uh, this past week of our lives has been devastatingly difficult for so many different reasons for for many different people. And uh, today we're going to wrap up this series by looking at a really, really important moment in the life of the church, a moment where great courage was required to not only speak truth to power... And to challenge the institution and the ways in which things had been for generations, but courage to name what they saw, courage to speak and to testify to the things that they were seeing God's Spirit doing, uh, the courage to follow the Spirit into uncharted waters, like new territory. And so... Um, a moment that I think changed history and and for sure changed the life of the church and the trajectory of the church, a moment that feels very right for us to study today. So, Acts chapter 15, if you have your Bibles uh, or you're in a place where you can stand, I'd invite you to do that. And we'll start in verse one. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some of the other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and elders about this question. the church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made this news made all the the believers very glad. And when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers, who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, stood up and said, "The Gentiles must be circumcised to require, uh, to to." and and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met to consider this question, and after much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. And now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through grace, the grace of our Lord Jesus, that we are saved just as they are. The whole assembly became silent. Sort of a mic drop moment for Peter. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among them, among the Gentiles through them. And when they finished, James got up and spoke brothers listen simon had described how the first how how god first intervened to choose the people for his name from the gentiles the words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it's written after this i will repair and rebuild david's fallen tent its ruins i will rebuild and i will restore it that the rest of mankind may seek the lord even all the gentiles who bear my name says the lord who does these things things known from long ago it is my judgment James says, Therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them. Let's write them a letter. Telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, sexual immorality, from meat strangled of animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times, and it is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So... Verse 22, the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose some of their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas, Silas, men who were leaders among the believers, and with them, they sent the following letter. The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Sicily, or Cilicia, we have heard that some went out from us without our authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we all agree to choose men and send them to you with our dear friends Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of Christ. Therefore, we're, we're sending Judas and Silas to confirm by word of mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit in us to not burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. Abstain from food sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. Farewell. <laughs> this is one of the best moments in scripture. You would do well to avoid these things. Farewell. Pray with me. God, this morning as we look at this passage and this story and attempt to hear from you, the living God, who is alive and well by your spirit at work in the world, take these words which are two dimensional on a page uh, written long ago and make them come alive to us today. May we see and hear the voice of the resurrected Christ to the church in 2020, I pray. In Jesus' name and by the power of the spirit, All God's people said together with a big, emphatic amen. Okay, friends, uh, Acts chapter 15. Um, Here's what I want to do this morning. I want to focus on one word that we read in that story. Then I want to lay that word over the story and see how the apostles are actually doing this word. And then I want to lay that word over our context in 2020, the last week of our lives together in our city and in our country, and see if the Spirit might want to say or do anything in you or in me or in the church. So the word is witness. Can I get a witness? Oh, they've all left. I'm looking for Mel and she's gone. Mel, can I get a witness? Uh, The word is witness and in Hebrew, it's oud. In in Greek, it's martus. Um, And to be a witness or marturio is to, to bear witness, to affirm that one has seen or heard or experienced something that he knows uh, or has been taught by divine revelation or inspiration. It's to give testimony, it's to utter honorable words or to give a report, to implore. Uh, If this were a gathering and you were all here, I would throw out an all play question and I would say, when I say the word witness, like what do you think or what what, what, what comes to mind? What do you feel when I say the word witness? I'm guessing if you were all here, we would hear things like, you know, um, evangelism or apologetics or, you know, street preaching. You got to, you know, witness to the people. Or maybe you'd go like the law court direction like someone you know testifies in a court or tells something that is true reports on what they have seen right these are all things we might think of when we think of witness buried in Acts chapter 15 in verse 8 is this word martus but we actually it's it's hard to see if you're not looking for it when it says God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them by giving the holy spirit to them just as he did to us so the peter he's standing before the Jerusalem leaders and he's trying to explain to them listen Here's why the Gentiles should be included. God, who knows the heart, he showed us that he accepted the Gentiles by giving the Spirit to them. And that word showed is the word marturio. So God, who knows the heart, marturioed, bared witness, bore witness, that he accepted the Gentiles by, or the, through the evidence of, the giving of the Spirit. So then, the apostles in this story are turning around and they're doing the same thing. They're bearing witness to the people they're talking to, the Jerusalem leaders, the, the, the Jerusalem Christians, and they're testifying. They're uttering honorable testimony to what they saw. So, first, we see God doing it. God bears witness and, and, and gives, uh, like bears witness and, and gives the evidence that the Gentiles are included in the story by the giving of the Spirit to them. And then we see the gen- or the apostles doing the same thing in this story. So what does it mean to bear witness? It means to testify. It means to utter honorable testimony, to give report, to, um, to reflect or say what you have experienced or you believe is true, to validate or stand by or behind the, the retelling of an event, to be a witness. What's fascinating is this witness idea Is a thread that begins in the very beginning of the story all the way back to Genesis chapter 12 with Abraham or Abram and Sarai who become Abraham and Sarah. Uh, Abram and Sarai are invited by God to follow this Yahweh to that their their family would be a blessing that God would bless them and their family would be a blessing and they would be a nation of people who ooted who bore witness who martyrioed to the nations the love of this God, Yahweh, the one true God. So Israel, at the end of Genesis, is found in, uh, well, at the beginning of Exodus, finds themselves in Egypt, oppressed, enslaved, uh, imprisoned, in some ways, in this empire. Now, fascinatingly enough, not without warning, God removes the Israelites, God hears the cry of the oppressed people, He removes the Israelites by force, by shutting down the economy, by the the Nile River being turned to blood, by the destruction of property. Maybe a sermon for another day, be that as it may. God removes them by force, stirs up some havoc in Egypt where the oppression was taking place, and parts the Red Sea. And the Israelites are to then become a kingdom of priests, a holy nation who ooted, who martyriored, who bore witness to the, the liberating love of God. You know the story of the scriptures, this doesn't take long to go south. They make a golden calf while Moses is away. God makes Moses the chief Uder, the chief martus, chief the chief witness bearer, um, to show the people, to lead the people, to bear witness to the liberating and saving love of God. He goes up on Sinai. He comes back. His face is glowing. He has seen God face to face and he, martus, he bears witness to this reality, the, the presence of God and the reality of God. Time passes, as, as scripture goes, the Israelites wander from being the chief witnesses of God, the uders, the martyrios, in the world for the nations, and they begin to worship other idols. So their influence, their testimony becomes less credible, right? And the prophets come to the people. The prophets come, Isaiah, Jeremiah, uh, Ezekiel, and they ud, they they testify, they cast visions for who God is and what God will do and what the people of God should be. Isaiah specifically tells the story of a servant who will become the chief Udir, the chief marturias, the chief martus, ironically enough, where we get the word martyr. The chief witness, whose life and teachings and even death would bear witness to what God is like. Jesus comes, he does exactly that. And then in the book of Acts, where we find ourselves today, we see the apostles doing the same thing, bearing witness, marturioing, to the movement of God and God's spirit. So I would argue Acts, what we find in Acts 2, Acts 3, 4, 7 and 8 where we've been, Acts 10 and 11 with Cornelius, now in Acts 15 and, and, and in other places, it's the apostles of Jesus who are bearing witness, who are testifying, who are uttering honorable testimony of the movement and the activity of God in their midst. So this is the word, witness. Can I get a witness? What does it mean to bear Witness. Now, in the time we have remaining, I want to ask two questions. What are these apostles bearing witness to? Okay, so they're they're testifying. But what are they testifying to? What have they seen that's helping them discern in this moment of disagreement? Right? That's what's happening in Acts 15, which I think is an important lesson or an important moment for the church as we discern and as we disagree with one another. What are the means or the mechanisms that we can employ to help discern the validity or the truth or the movement of God? So, what are they bearing witness to, first question, and then second, what are we bearing witness to? What is this moment in 2020, in the last week? What is God up to, and where is the Spirit of God at work in our midst? Is there anything that we as Christians, me as a white Christian in particular, might have the opportunity to testify to, to bear witness to, to stand behind and give a credible report for, the movement, the activity the invitation of God. So first, what are the apostles bearing witness to? Number one, the presence of God's spirit. The debate is raging between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. Jewish Christians who are demanding that Gentile Christians become circumcised, essentially become ethnically and religiously Jewish, not just Christian. And there's great debate. They can't decide. Some think they should be circumcised. Follow Torah. Follow, eat kosher. And the Gentile Christians are like, hold the the phone here, right? Like adults who are going to have to be circumcised. This is a big deal. Like Not a debate you want to lose if you're a Gentile Christian. Can I get an amen? Can I get a witness? So... Uh, Peter stands up and he's saying, no, the Gentiles, they're full members. Uh, They're included in the the people of God. And he says in in this passage and in multiple others, that the spirit of God is present with them. And we cannot deny the truth of that fact. In verse eight, we read it. God who knows the heart bore witness, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. In chapter 11 that we read last two weeks ago with Cornelius, He says, if I began, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit came on them and she, uh, the Holy Spirit's often feminine in scripture, she had come on us at the beginning. So if God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in Jesus, who was I to stand in God's way? Like if you read the latter parts of the gospels and the book of Acts over and over and over again, the apostles are bearing witness to the presence of God's spirit in someone's life as the means of discerning the validity of their claim as a means to discern the validity or the truthfulness of the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's family. Now that begs the question, well how do you know when the Spirit of God is present in somebody's life? Great question. It's a good thing we have Galatians chapter five because Paul tells us exactly what happens when the fruit or what the fruit of the presence of God's Spirit is in someone's life. He says it's increasing and the steadfast presence of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, right? We know what it looks like when the presence of God's Spirit is in someone's life. And so when we see that and the evidence of that, we can say, look, God's Spirit is present among this person. They have been reborn. They've been regenerated. Their eyes have been opened. They are alive in Christ. They are in Christ. Whatever you want to say, there it is. And that's what the apostles did. It seemed good to us, to the Spirit in us, right? So first, they bore witness to the Spirit of God being present in the Gentiles' lives. Second, they bore witness to the fulfillment of Scripture, to to something's agreement with Scripture. After Peter gets up and tells the Jerusalem officials that the Spirit of God is present, James gets up and he starts quoting Scripture. He says, the words of the prophet are in agreement with what we have seen. And then he quotes I think it's a psalm. Uh, After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. God speaking here. Its ruins I will rebuild. I will restore it. The rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. So in their disagreement, in their discernment, the apostles appeal to scripture to bear witness to the fact that that the, the, the Gentiles should be included. Despite what they may have thought, despite maybe even what they had been taught, that the inclusion of the Gentiles is consistent with God's heart in scripture. Now, you guys have heard me talk about this ad nauseum. I think it is so important that we learn how to handle the Bible, that we have tools, that we, we, we have like good hermeneutical principles, which is just the study, like the science of interpretation, that we use our brains and, because Lord knows that this, this word has been misused, misquoted, and then applied to all kinds of people that have the effect of which has been oppression and exclusion. So it's important that we do it well and that we do it thoughtfully, but I want to remind us and call us back to Scripture that in this moment, and notice that the apostles are, are, are bearing witness to, the, to what the Spirit of God is doing, but also that this idea of including the Gentiles is consistent with the arc, the trajectory, the aim, the heart of Scripture. So when we're discerning When we're in disagreement, if someone says, well, the Spirit is here and the Spirit's doing this thing, but but it is in contrast to or going in a totally different direction than the heart and the aim and the trajectory of Scripture, that's a tough argument to make in my book. I think it's important that we notice that they looked, they appealed to Scripture in their discernment. Last, they bore witness to God's presence through the Spirit, they bore witness to the fulfillment of Scripture, and then they bore witness to their own experience most evangelicals would begin to tar and feather pastor at this point in time. Like, you should trust your experience. Um, let me ask you a question. What, or, or is there anything in your life that you claim or believe to be true that, is, that contradicts your experience? For example, I believe gravity works. But then every time I go to sit on a chair, I just float above it. No. My experience confirms my belief that gravity works. Let me approach this differently. In Christian discipleship, I was always taught that my experience was not to be trusted, that my heart is deceptive and wicked and, and will tell me what I want to hear. And while I understand like the logic of that and, and the truth of that, that I don't always see clearly. And in fact, I don't see it all sometimes, that's true. I think we are fooling ourselves if we think that our experience is not connected to what we affirm as true and that we believe as true. Richard Rohr talks about, he talks about the tricycle of understanding. He would argue, so back up, 500 years, the church, Protestant and Catholic, they are, their wheels are spinning, they're trying to figure out how to have any kind of authoritative statements or claim in, in the Enlightenment, where reason is king, I think, therefore I am, everything is determined by reason and thought. So the church is looking for authority. Protestants go to scripture, Catholics go to tradition. Our locus of authority lie in these two different places. For Protestants, it's the Bible. This is, where we, this is why people say, that the Bible says that I believe it, that's enough. Because our authority is in the Bible. For Catholics, it's the Pope. It's the tradition. It's the perennial tradition and the saints who have come before them. Rohr then says, we're all fooling ourselves if we don't agree that experience actually is the front wheel of the tricycle. Nobody says something's true when their experience completely contradicts that reality. Like, I, I, I was trying to think of something where I would say, this is true, but my experience is completely contradictory to what I'm claiming to be true. I, I couldn't find anything now roar with wisdom and i would agree says listen we can't allow our experience only to be the thing that dr- drives the train but why why are we fooling ourselves let's stop kidding ourselves experience actually is our first our first lens it's our touch point to reality and what's true then we we gather around we come back to scripture the tradition the perennial tradition of what the fathers and mothers have said before us and with those three things in concert with one another we can begin to discern what's true and right and faithful wesley talked about the wesleyan quadrilateral it's the same idea it's just four things in a quadril in a you know different quadrants he's got um oh what is it scripture reason experience and tradition but both of the models have experience and so for the first, the first apostles, they experienced the rebirth and the faith of these Gentiles. They saw the Spirit being poured out among them. They saw them engaged in the work of the gospel and, the, and the, the telling of the story about Jesus. Their experience, in part, led them to believe and affirm as true the inclusion of the Gentiles into the family of God. I think that's really important to say out loud. So when questioned by those in power in Acts 15, in this council at Jerusalem, they bore witness, they gave testimony, they, they, they recounted as true their experience, they retold of the spirit being poured out, of, of this inclusion of the Gentiles being consistent with scripture and of their own experience. Now, that's all um, a sort of precursor. That, I think that was gonna be my whole sermon before last weekend. And I was just gonna talk about how we discern when we disagree with each other. I think that's important. And I think that it's important to name that in this moment for the apostles, they bore witness to these facts, the Spirit's presence, Scripture being consistent and fulfilled, and their own experience. Now, what can we bear witness to in this moment, in our lives? And if you will allow me, as I close, I want to attempt to bear witness to some things that I believe we have the opportunity to stand in solidarity and affirm as true and real, to testify, yes. You may disagree with me on these. That's okay. You don't, I don't demand your agreement. But I want to offer these to you for your consideration because I think that they're Uh, Even if you disagree, your engagement with what I'm about to say, I think, is very important. I think we're bearing witness to, or we have the opportunity to bear witness to, the effect or the effects of systemic racism and the oppression of people of color for over 400 years in our country. I used to watch Popeye as a kid, you know, the cartoon, the the guy who was kind of weak and lame, and then he would eat spinach and he'd get really strong. Uh, there was this moment, if you remember Popeye, where you know his his sort of tolerance and um, patience would sort of wear thin to the point where he would say this phrase. He'd say, "I can't stand it. I can't stand it no more." And then he would open up the spinach with his pipe and he would chug it down. And then he would bring about change. Dare I say he would bring about justice to uh, the situation by any means necessary in Popeye. Um, seems like a really dumb example, but I would say to the white church and to white Christians like myself who are awake and paying attention, we have the opportunity to bear witness to the damaging and dehumanizing effects of systemic racism and oppression on our brothers and sisters of color. And I hope, I hope and I pray that it's true of me and it's true of us as it was of Popeye that our response is in unison with what we're hearing around us, that I can't stand it, I can't stand it no more with our brothers and sisters of color. And I think what we have seen in the last week is the effect and the effects of oppression and racism over a very long period of time, where people, because of the color of their skin, have been systematically and strategically placed outside of opportunity and, and denied the right to vote. Like 1960s, if I'm not mistaken. African Americans were given, were given, listen to that, were afforded the right to vote in our country. So I, I wanna say out loud that I think one of the things that we are bearing witness to in the last week is the effect of that systematic, intentional and unintentional, oppression and racism. I think we're also bearing witness to the speaking of truth to power and the exposing of the lie that racism and oppression are built on in our context, which is white body supremacy. Like, many of you were at the Capitol this last week. My two oldest daughters were down there. Many of your kids were down there. And we watched kids, students, student-led, thousands of them, on the, on the, the grounds of the Capitol, in the grass, before the, 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 the symbol of government and institution, democracy in our state, saying, we're tired. We're tired of living in fear. We're tired of being targeted. We're tired of being treated as less than and tired of the disparities that fall along racial lines. We're tired of being denied opportunity. We're tired. We're done. We're tired of it. And all of those, the fear, the, the, the targeting, the, the disparities are built on The lie of white body supremacy, that one particular body or whiteness is the supreme existence, the pinnacle of the human body, and the standard by which all other bodies then are judged. That is a lie from the pit of hell, that no Christian should have a problem denouncing and repenting from. That is anti-Christ. It's antithetical to the nature of who God is and what Jesus showed up like. So for white people, sure, like... We've gained power and influence and wealth and control by the propagation of this lie that one particular skin color or body is better than another. But again, no follower of Jesus should have a problem denouncing and repenting of that lie because that we, that's not what Jesus grasps for, that's not what Jesus is like, that's not the kind of power Jesus wields, and because it tears down and dehumanizes and terrorizes our fellow brothers and sister humans. We should have no problem whatsoever denouncing and repenting of that lie. And I think we are bearing witness to truth being spoken. I mean, I, I'm here, I hope and I pray that the things that I'm hearing that I've never heard from government before or from officials before last. Governor Walz himself the other day, all these great things about the state of Minnesota were this and that and this wonderful place to live and all these kinds of things. And he gets to the end and he says, all these things are true if you're white. And they're not true if you're not. Like our state has one of the largest disparities in education if you're white and if you're not. In terms of housing, we have one of the largest disparities. So... I'm hearing things from our government and from elected officials, which I've never heard before. We're hearing truth being spoken to power, and I hope and I pray that that truth affects change, and I hope that you do too. I think we're also bearing witness to a pivotal moment for the Church of Jesus Christ, uh, I'm not like a, a sky. The sky is falling kind of guy. I'm, I tend to be pretty level-headed. I try not to like get on the conspiracy theory train, and you know keep my bearings. Uh, but I th- I don't think that we can overstate the importance of this moment for what we call the good news of Jesus. Uh, if the church doesn't stand up and stand with those seeking justice and reformation in our law enforcement and in our politics and in our government, I fear that we will have abdicated our responsibility and lost our prophetic voice in exchange for power and protection and prosperity. Now, before you think I'm saying that all cops are killers and all law enforcement is bad and we need to do abol- I'm not saying any of that. I'm a pacifist, for crying out loud. I don't think you can read the, the teaching of, of Jesus and have violence as a response, ever. That's my own personal interpretation. So I don't uh, uh, endorse rioting and looting and violence. I don't. And yet, I can sure as hell understand why that would be the response when over how many years and generations people are told, use the system, vote, use your democratic voice, and then those systems and those votes don't, don't matter and those systems not only don't work for them but work against them. So I can't stand it anymore. I understand the response. I think this is a moment, though, where we as the church have an opportunity to, to say something. And I think that the gospel demands it and depends on it. So this is a moment for us as the church to stand up in solidarity with those seeking reform and justice. When our, when our systems train people who serve in them and this is the result that we get, we need to think about how we change those structures and those systems that train those people. And I think this is a moment that the church, I fear that if we don't, that we will abdicate our responsibility and lose our position to even declare the good news of the gospel. One of my professors from seminary, a guy that I just have a ton of respect for, his name's Joel Lawrence, he pastors at Central Baptist University. He wrote this this week and I just, I told him I was gonna quote him. Uh, he said I had his permission. He said this, we are witnessing the result of the church's abdication of our mission and of our giving that mission to the state. Having abdicated our mission, the church then sought to position ourselves so that we would be cozy with the state, that we might share in her power, benefit from her protection, and receive her prosperity. We then made a theological virtue out of validating and defending Caesar." Christians on the right validating right-wing Caesars. Christians on the left validating left-wing Caesars. This is not a Democrat, Republican. Don't hear, don't hear that. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what he's saying. That's not what I'm saying. This is a great heresy and one that we must root out of the church. To do this, we must break out of the left and right dichotomy that we have accepted. Accommodating Christianity to the ideological spectrum of liberal democracy is itself a bitter fruit of our abdication. My kingdom is not of this ideology, Jesus says. So rejecting this heresy is not about finding a better Caesar. Rejecting this heresy will take us on a deep journey into ecclesiology, that we might gain a renewed vision of the church's calling to be present in and for the world, not to dominate and control, which is the way of Caesar, but to love and to serve, which is the way of Christ. Rejecting this heresy will take us on a journey deep into our own hearts, asking God to destroy the idols that sit on our altars. Rejecting this heresy will take us on a journey to Golgotha, to the cross of Christ, to be crucified with him, dying to the powers of this world that we might truly live according to the Spirit of God. Friends, as I close, I'll say this. In the end, in the book of Acts, they found, the apostles found two things to be important enough that they asked both Jews and Gentiles alike to abide by them, to heed their warning. And that was what we do with our bodies matters, who we give our bodies to and how we give our bodies in, in, in intimacy and sex, it matters. And then secondly, that the idols that we worship and, and, and the allegiance that we give to those in place of the kingdom of God is dangerous I'm trying to think of a word that's like more potent than dangerous. <laughs> that the idols that we have and we give allegiance to things that are not the kingdom of God, they, they may be our ruin. And so as we try to understand what these people in the first The first apostles are trying to like make sense of Jesus and his resurrection, his death and his resurrection, and them bearing witness to this moment in the book of Acts in chapter 15. I wonder if for you and I there aren't a few things that we might bear witness to. And I I offer these in humility. I don't have the answers to all the questions and I probably say more than I should sometimes and maybe not as much as I could have in other times. And when you try to, like, walk on a razor's edge, all you do is get cut. <laughs> but as your pastor and one of your pastors in this church, I love you too much to not say these things. And I think this is a moment where the church has an opportunity to bear witness to some things that the Spirit of God is doing in our midst. And so, as we move to a time of silence, are there any idols that have taken up space in your allegiance to Jesus, in the way of Jesus, and the kingdom of Jesus? Is there any allegiance that you have that is supersedes your, your allegiance to Jesus? Is there anything that you need to repent from? There are a whole bunch of things I'm repenting from, I'll tell you that right now. As you think about This last week and how you respond and and how you live going forward. Is there anything that you want to say, I don't want to go that way anymore. I want to go that way. That's repentance. Turn around. Is there any lament that needs to be expressed? From the depths of your soul, let sadness and sorrow and anguish, let it pour out. That's part of what tonight is. And then what are the works of God and the movements of the spirit that you are bearing witness to? Hey, it's a really important question that we ask. So let me pray, lead you into a time of silence and then to the table for communion. God, as we take these few moments to consider um, this story and maybe what your spirit might be saying to us today, I pray that you would erase anything that I've said that's not of you, that it would be forgotten, that as those emails are typed, that, that, that what was said would, would not even be remembered. I pray that only what is true and what is of you would stand and that it would grow deep, that it would be planted in our hearts and that those seeds would take root. So that more and more with increasing degrees, we look like, sound like, smell like, act like, love like Jesus. So Holy Spirit, do that work in us now. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Whenever you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took a cup and he blessed it. And he said, this is my body shed for you. Whenever you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. So this table, it's not of the church, but it's of the Lord. It's made ready for those who love God and those who want to love God more. So come, you who have a little bit of faith or a lot of faith or you who've been here often, maybe not for a long time or ever before, come. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Come not because the church invites you or because I invite you, but because the resurrected Christ invites you to come and be fed here at the table. So as you take the bread, I invite you to hear these words. This is the body of Christ broken for you. Take and eat. And as you take the cup, hear these words. The blood of Christ shed for you. Take and drink. close with a song we've sung at Awaken before. It talks about your labor as the church. That though at times it seems hard and difficult and maybe even um, despairing that where is justice? Where is the gospel? Where is the good news? Where where is righteousness? And why does it seem that those who are unrighteous are prospering and those who are trying to, to, to be about love are just getting beaten down even in those moments, we know that our labor is not in vain. The prophet says that as my word goes out, it will not return to me void. It will do what I, what it's set out to do, which is to bring food and life and love and liberty and justice. And so we sing this song as an act of faith that that's true. So let's sing that together.
0: though the rocks they cry out and the seed may grow the place of your To labor to build, we'll find thee with after, and joy be filled. The serpent that hurts and destroys
1: and a blessing for you I I recognize that maybe some of the things that I'm saying are sharp and without context they may feel uh, a little blunt and I hope that you know my love for you I hope that you know that uh, as a pastor I want good things for you and I want I want you to grow. I want our community to grow in our ability to love and ascribe worth to anyone and everyone. And so maybe a specific word to to you. If you feel offended that something that I said was really sharp and you disagreed with it and your instinct is to leave, don't. Email me. Call me. I will Zoom until the cows come home if I need to, to talk, to sit, to be with you, tell me what you think, tell me how you feel, tell me why you think I'm wrong. Let's be in relationship as we work through this, as we talk about this, as we trust each other and love each other and want good things for each other. And that means sometimes we challenge each other. So don't leave, that's easy, anybody can do that. Go find another church, don't do that. Stay. Like that feeling that you might have right now is exact you're right where you need to be. So lean into that. I hope that you trust me enough. I hope that my voice and my 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 time with you over the last ten years has proven that I, I love you and I want good things for you. So let's lean into that. The other thing I'll say is I got a text from a friend the other day that said he was talking about COVID and this whole deal and he's like, I was just I was listening to Bruce Springsteen and I heard Glory Days and I was thinking to myself, man, I wish kind of wish we could go back to the glory days of three months ago. And I wanted to say, glory days for who? Maybe it was about COVID, maybe, but but like, I don't want to go back. I want to go forward. And I want to move into where the spirit of God is calling us, which I think is, is more equitable, more just, more loving, more grace-filled um, and, and it might require me to put down some of the power and, and opportunity and privilege that I've been afforded. Okay, I, I want to go forward. I don't want to go back. I, I don't really think those were glory days for everybody. They were great for some, but I think that there's the vision of the kingdom is better. So my invitation to you is that way, not that way. So if that's what you're interested in, then buckle up, friends. It's a great adventure to quote Stephen Curtis Chapman. Wow. (laughs) Stephen Curtis Chapman. Saddle up your horses. Okay. Uh, I'm going to bless you and we're going to be done. Here we go. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord lift up his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance to you, meaning God's face to your face, giving you his peace in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And the church said together, amen. See you next week. See you in a couple hours.
0: facebook.com backslash community